Well, good morning, church family. Happy Sunday to you. It's a beautiful spring, Lord's Day morning, and we're certainly thankful for uh, what looks like a very nice crowd that we have with us this morning, those who are perhaps uh, watching at home. We're thankful for the opportunity to worship God and to study His Word. Speaking of His Word, it was not too long ago that the magazine Gentleman's Quarterly, GQ magazine, put out an article uh, entitled The Worst most overrated, sorry, not the worst, but the most overrated books ever written. And the, obviously the title is the point of the article, but just to elaborate on it, what they did was they, they listed 20 books that are famous and widely read and commonly considered. And then they said, but this book, for example, is overrated. Instead of this book, and they would supplement a different book, they'd say, read this one instead. If you're interested in this, don't read this, it's overrated. Instead, read this book over here. And they had a, a great number of books that maybe you're familiar with. Lord of the Rings was on that list, which is about where I shut it down. We'll get to the big one in a second. Um, Catcher in the Rye is on that list. Lonesome Dove is on that list, which means nothing to me, but my friend Clay would have had a, a meltdown at hearing that Lonesome Dove is overrated. So all of these famous books that almost many of them seem like they were particularly chosen just to rile up and stir up a response from people. It's called trolling, and that's what it does. And it, it, it did, it worked very effectively, because when I got to the number 12 entry, I saw that they had regarded the Holy Bible as one of the most overrated books ever written. It's not the number one entry. It's not the number 20 entry, so it's not at the beginning of the list. It doesn't count down to that one being the top of the list. It's not the exact middle. They just stuck it in at number 12, which I don't know why that annoys me so much, but it feels like it deserves, if it's going to be a place at all, it should be a place greater than just somewhere lost in the middle between Catcher in the Rye and Frankenstein. That's where the Bible was placed, and it is regarded as, in their estimation, one of the most overrated books ever written. It had a little three-sentence blurb about why they considered overrated, the first of which I included in the Pew Bulletin, and I'll share that with you and then the, the other two to follow. Here's what they say in their estimation as to why the Bible is overrated. What they say is the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. And so far, I'm in complete agreement. That is absolutely a true statement. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by a lot of people, many of whom have never even read it, but who like to say that they've read it. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of religious people out there, who like to talk about the Bible, who like to talk around the Bible, who like to talk over and under the Bible, but they don't specifically like to talk Bible, because when they do, they realize how little Bible they've actually ever read. And when confronted with Bible, their first response usually is to say, well, that can't be so because it contradicts my worldview, which so far has very conveniently been in line with what I thought the Bible was. So absolutely, it's true. There are a lot of people who say they like the Bible, but don't, who, actually, don't, who don't actually live by it. And that fundamental truth is in a lot of ways the, the reason behind a lot of the things that are said in the remainder of that quote, which goes on to say, there are some good parts, but certainly not, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced, which obviously we're, this is written by non-believers, so they're not going to consider biblical inspiration. They're purely looking at the Bible as a work of human uh, construction, which it certainly is not. But they're solely looking at the human authorship side of it, and they are they're looking at the Bible as though it was a, um, a storybook, as though it was something like 
Frankenstein, or so it was something like Catcher in the Rye, with chapters and a beginning, middle, and ending, and a once upon a time, and a the end at the end. But that is not the way your Bible is designed. That is not the way your Bible is meant to be read. That's not how the Bible's entire purpose uh, came into existence. That's not how it was originally written and eventually compiled into. That's not how you should read the Bible. And yet, once again, there are many people who talk about how much they love the Bible that believe they should read the Bible as though it was a chapter book, as though it was a story book. And they feel a sense of obligation when they sit down to say, oh, I guess I've got to read the Bible. So I'm going to start on page 1, Genesis 1-1, which there's nothing wrong with Genesis 1-1. But you don't have to start on page 1 to read the Bible. In fact, I go out of my way to tell people, don't read your Bible. Study your Bible. Your Bible's not a once-upon-a-time storybook. You should study your Bible as a handbook. You should study your Bible as a, as a series of letters written from the heart of God to the mind of man. Don't read it as though it is some person in some cave somewhere decided to scribble down some, some pseudo-religious thoughts because he was high on mushrooms or something, which is something that people will argue and say. And they just flippantly come up with that. That's not how the Bible was conceived. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not a book. It is 66 books written from the very divine mind of God. But if you don't see it that way, if you want to look at it like it's just lonesome dove, then I can see why you might look at it and say it's it's underwhelming. If you don't understand what you're looking at, I can see why you might be disappointed in it, which is something that happened even to Jesus himself. Many of the very people he came to save expected something else and were disappointed at what they got. So it's no surprise people do the same thing with the Bible. But then we come to the last part of that little blurb about why they think the Bible is overrated. And it's here where the sermon is going to come. Because it gives you a list of things that this writer thinks is wrong with the Bible. He says it, the Bible, is repetitive. It is self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill intentioned now ordinarily i would read something and i would just let it go but i could not just let this go ordinarily i would just roll my eyes and say well i i see why someone would say that because they're coming from an atheistic mindset and they have a bias against the word of god and they've been programmed by culture and society to think those things i get it it's not true i completely stand opposed to it but i get it I'm not going to write a letter to the editor of GQ because they would never see it. I'm not going to waste my time trying to do that. I'm not going to get my blood pressure up and worry about it. I'm just going to move on with my life. But then I read that last part, and it has five key words. And as a preacher, I couldn't help but see a sermon there. And so now I think, well, I've got to preach that. Because is the Bible this? Is the Bible what they say it is? Is it repetitive? Is it self-contradictory? Is it sententious? Is it foolish? Is it ill-intentioned? I would say, maybe, no, 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 all the way across the board. The Bible, and to, to summarize, the Bible is not what they say it is. It is not overrated. In fact, it is grossly underrated. For the very reason that it's said in the very first part of that statement, a lot of people talk about it but don't actually read it and live by it. So let's take those things that they say one by one, and let's consider if it's true or not. Is the Bible, number one, repetitive and if it is is that a genuine criticism of the bible i would argue and i think you would agree with me that the bible is very repetitive but that is not necessarily a bad thing the or it is not a bad thing in the case of the bible 
being repetitive is not necessarily a bad thing. In the case of the Bible, it has a very specific reason behind it. But let's just consider the fact, just to start with, yes, of course the Bible repeats itself. But you may not understand why or how or for what purpose it does because you don't know how to read and look at the Bible. For example, if you see the Bible as a chapter storybook and you come to the character of Joseph and you read about his life story, which can be easily, quickly summarized, Joseph finds himself in prison in a foreign land or in captivity in a foreign land, is given the power to interpret dreams, who uses that power to help the king of that foreign land, and then he is promised and blessed by God and rises up the ranks to be one of the most powerful people in that foreign land. That's basically the story of Joseph. It's also basically the story of Daniel. Daniel finds himself in captivity in a foreign land, begins to interpret dreams by the power of God, uses those dreams to help the king of that foreign land, and rises up the ranks to be one of the most powerful people in that land. It's the same story, except it's not the same story. It's the same thing that happened to two different people who were both being blessed and protected and guided by the providence of God. You see, if you take God out of it, you've got just characters in a story. It's just Harry Potter over here and Dr. Frankenstein over there. But if you put God in it, you see a mind at work. You see a hand guiding. You see a being that guides Joseph into his position for God's goodwill. And a God, the same one, guiding Daniel into his position, again, for his goodwill. The story of Moses and Jesus. The comparisons are legion. It's a whole series of sermons. But just looking at the beginning of their lives on earth. Moses is born at a time when the king of that foreign land starts killing babies left and right. And it's by the providence of God that he is protected and spared and becomes a mighty leader of his people. That's the beginning of Jesus' life on earth. He's born at a time when the king starts killing babies left and right. And by the providence and power of God, he's protected and spared and rises to become a leader of his people. Both are lawgivers, both are prophets, etc., etc., etc. But it is not just because someone who was writing Matthew ran out of ideas and started copy-pasting from Exodus. It's because the same Holy Spirit inspired both. It's because the same providential God allowed both to rise the way that they did for his goodwill. You can't read the book of Judges and not see repetition. But here's the big one. When you read Judges, you think, I'm just reading the same thing over and over. This cycle over and over. God's people are, everything is fine. Because everything is so fine, they fall into moral decay and disregard for God. And because of that, God punishes them. And then they cry and they beg God for a deliverer. And he saves them with the judge who brings prosperity again to the land until they get complacent again. And they're punished again. They cry again. They're saved again. And that cycle is the whole book of Judges. But listen, that's not just repetition because of bad writing. That's repetition because history repeats itself. Every history repeats itself. You can't help it because people are stupid and we keep making the same mistakes. That's just the nature of man. We keep messing up. And so in Judges, you see a miniature version of that. The point being, you need God and you keep forgetting about that. Psalm 119, which Bill read from a little bit ago. Every single verse in the biggest chapter of the biggest book, smack dab in the middle of your Bible, every single verse is an ode to the Word of God. You can't find in any verse some non-reference. Every single verse has a reference to the precepts of God, the the judgments of God, the word of God, the statutes of God. Because the whole point of it is a poetic expression of love for the word of God. Is it repetitive? Yes. But there's a purpose behind repetition. Open your Bibles now and look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. 2 Peter 1, 
verses 12 and 13. Listen to what Peter says, almost almost in passing. Just says this is an understood, obvious thing, but he's going to acknowledge it anyway. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Oh, I'm in 1 Peter, sorry. 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. You know the things that I'm saying. I'm not breaking new ground. I'm not treading new water. I'm not telling you new information. You know all these things, and yet here I am, Peter says, by inspiration, repeating them. And God doesn't do anything without purpose. God doesn't do anything accidentally or unnecessarily. And Peter says, I have been inspired to tell you things that you already know over again. Why? Because people are hard-headed, and people don't get it the first time. People need to be told over again and over again. And over again, sometimes, if you're my child. Because I will tell my child, go take a shower. And then 30 minutes will pass, no shower. And I will have to say again, go take a shower. And he'll just go take a shower. As though I never said it the first time. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, oh, oh. He just walks in and takes a shower. What happened the first time? Just, just disappeared into the ether of his mind. Didn't hear it. The second time he heard it, I repeated myself. As far as he's concerned, he just, I just said it the one time. That's God. God repeats himself all the time. But suddenly, on like the 70th time he says it, it sinks in with me. And to me, it's like the first time I've heard it, and I'll obey it. So it's a good thing he said it 70 times. Thus, Peter, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm telling you what you need to hear, and I'm going to say it over and over until it sinks into everybody, including those in the back. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This second epistle I write to you in order to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. The King James says stir up to take your minds and to make sure they don't get stagnant, to make sure the waters are always running in your brain, stirring constantly, agitated, at work, active. And I do that by repeating myself over and over. Is the Bible repetitive? Yes. But it's because we need it to be. That's not a, a, a flaw. That's not a bug. It's a feature. Number two, is the Bible self-contradictory? The idea being you can't go three pages reading this thing without coming across something that contradicts what you read two pages ago. It seems like every time you read about a doctrine, it's contradicting some other doctrine. So it sounds like the people who were writing the Bible couldn't even agree with themselves about what the Bible's supposed to say. And that's the argument. And even before you get into answering it, the very statement is built on a false foundation because it makes it sound like the people who were writing the Bible were all just sitting in a room like monkeys with typewriters and they were all just going along and writing their own little parts and they were stitching them together as though it wasn't a book written over thousands of years in thousands of miles distance between them. That may be an exaggeration. 40 different writers with different languages, different cultures, different uh, socioeconomic statuses, different everything. Every time you get a book, it's a new slice of a different culture. And yet it is harmonious and consistent. But the criticism against it is built on this idea that Peter was somehow talking when Peter was writing 1 Peter that he had Paul in the room next to him. And they couldn't get along and they couldn't agree on what they were writing, so they just wrote contradictory things. But that's just not how the Bible is written. That's not how it works. And you get that criticism constantly. In fact, it's maybe the most common criticism of the Bible, that it is this thing that cannot agree with itself. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, has this statement. He says, a thing cannot both be and not be for the same person. Simple, obvious, you think, well, duh, but it's Aristotle. It's a long time ago. This was groundbreaking when he said that. 
This is the first definition of a contradiction that society had ever heard before. Things cannot both be and not be for the same person. Those doors back there cannot both be closed and be open. Except, yes, they can. If I go open them, then they were closed and now they are open. A thing cannot both be and not be for the same person at the same time. In other words, whether or not a thing is contradictory is dependent on circumstances, context, activity that may occur in between. If you just have a static verse over here that you take out of context, you can easily find a dozen other verses that you can pull out of context and hold it in stasis and say, look, they contradict. So let's do that real quick. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now I'm going to take that verse, I'm going to remove it from its context. It's very helpful context. I'm going to hold it in stasis over here. And I'm going to circle a part here and underline a part there, and I'm going to make a big show of Paul saying, you're not saved by works. You don't need works, is the conclusion I'm going to draw from that. And then over here, I'm going to go, now student, follow me here, the teacher will say. Let's go to James chapter 2, verse 26, where James says, faith without works is dead, being alone. Now here, James is saying, if you don't have works, your faith is worthless. It's dead. It lies in, in, in a state of disrepair. So over here, Paul is saying, you don't need works. Over here, James is saying, you absolutely have to have works. Look, the Bible is self-contradictory. And if that's the way you're supposed to read the Bible, I guess case closed. But you're not, because there's context. Those are two different writers writing to two different audiences about two different things. One to tell you that you can't earn your salvation. The other to tell you that if you are saved and you don't do anything to help other people, you might as well not be. Two different contexts, two different purposes, two different points. And those same people who will argue that idea about the Bible, that it's self-contradictory, would hate it if people took their words out of context and made them look like they were contradicting themselves. And yet they don't give God the same benefit of the doubt. But you do that to the Bible, and you see it is a harmonious, complete, unified text. It is not self-contradictory. Number three, is the Bible sentitious? What is sentitious? It's, that, it's his words, the GQ magazine writer's words. Sentitious means, is the Bible, or the writers of the Bible, up on a high horse, looking down on everybody else, moralizing and preachifying and speechifying, and talking about how terrible they are, unlike them who are so great is that the attitude of the bible is the attitude of the bible i'm good and you're bad and i don't mean that's god speaking i mean me the preacher standing up on the stage i'm one two three four steps above all of you people and i'm holding the bible and i'm waving it does that mean that i'm good and you're bad if i can open the bible and tell you that sin is bad and you're a sinner therefore you're bad and i don't mention myself guess what that is bad and i shouldn't do that I shouldn't have the attitude that I'm on a high horse and I'm above you and that I could point out your sins and identify all of your sins and conveniently forget all the sins that I'm committing. And I could very easily identify your sins and call your sins bad and I could talk a lot about your sins and just conveniently forget that there are other sins out there that maybe you're not doing that I am. And I could treat your sins as somehow worse than my sins. That's being sententious. And people do that all the time. People who talk about the Bible but haven't actually read the Bible. People who like to say they love the Bible but don't actually obey the Bible do that all the time. And as a result, the Bible gets a reputation that ought to be given to sinful people. The Bible is not sententious, nor are the Bible's writers. The Bible's writers put us all, including the Bible's writers, 
in the same category. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's only by the grace of God that we find justification. Romans chapter 3, 23 and 24. We are all in the same destroyed boat, sinking fast, needing the same life preserver, which is the cross of Christ. Paul does not put himself on a pedestal and look down on me. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Peter, who wrote uh, two epistles and was the subject of more than half of the gospel accounts, he's the most written about person other than Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter, this famed apostle and leader among the Christians, Peter was not saying, I'm on a pedestal, I'm up here, I'm wearing a big tall pointy hat and a white robe. No, that's not historically accurate. Peter doesn't put himself up there and look down at everyone else. Peter is constantly screwing up. Peter is constantly messing up. Peter is constantly being rebuked by Jesus or even rebuked by Paul in Galatians chapter 2. That's not sententious. That's a recognition of all of us needing the same thing, which is salvation. On the other hand, you got Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker. You remember that scandal back in the 80s, I think it was. These two televangelists, these two guys fighting over the same market share of people who talk about how much they love the Bible and don't actually read the Bible. They had the whole market cornered. But they didn't want to split it 50-50. Each one wanted to be the one. And so what did these people started doing? Jimmy Swagger started spreading rumors about Jim Baker that Jim Baker was cheating on his wife. And in fact, he was with his secretary. In retaliation, Jim Baker had a private eye follow Jimmy Swagger around and discover that he had stepped into a New Orleans motel with the lady of the night. Both of them seeking to destroy the other and in so doing, talking about how unrighteous and immoral and bad they were so you should turn your channels to watch me was their attitude. When in fact they were both disgusting sinners. Even if they hadn't cheated on their wives, they were false teachers and false prophets, which is disgusting enough. But they had this attitude of, I'm going to get on my high horse and I'm going to bring that person down so that people will turn to me. And because of that prevalent attitude among believers, so-called though they're hardly worthy of the name, the reputation of the Bible persists that it is sententious. No, sinners are sententious. All of us are guilty of kind of blanketing over our sins, making excuses for our sins, saying things like, well, I had to because, but you should not ever. We all do that. But let's be careful that we don't recognize that in ourselves and turn away from Christ, or turn to Christ. Let's be careful that we do that and then be careful that we don't just stew in our occasional sententious behavior. Let me give you a great parable, or not even a parable, a prayer that Jesus taught. Look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, <coughs> verses 9 through 14. And tell me if this attitude that he describes in this prayer isn't familiar. Luke 18 and verse 9, Jesus spoke this parable unto certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Here's the attitude of a person who A, thinks of himself as righteous enough to get by. He trusts in his own righteousness and how good he is, which led him naturally to B, he looks down on other people because you're not on my level. You're not as righteous as I am. So shame on you. Here the parable goes as thus, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, self-righteous. The other was a publican, a tax collector, an outcast of society, a rank sinner. Verse 11. And the Pharisee stood and prayed like this with himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even that publican over there. 
I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. God, I'm so glad that I'm not like that sinner over there and I know you're glad too. I know you're glad to have me, God. Because what would the kingdom be without me, right? Because I don't do those things and I don't do those things and I don't do what that guy does over there. Meanwhile, that guy over there, verse 13, standing all the way in the back in the corner, not to be seen of anybody else, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven in shame, but instead smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The other guy never even acknowledged the reality or the possibility of his own sins. It was just, I'm glad I'm not a sinner. Well, guess what, buckaroo? You are. This guy over here didn't even care about the sins of anyone else. He couldn't get past the reality of his own sins. I've said this many times in our Isaiah class on Wednesday night. You will either be humble or you will be humbled. One of the two is going to happen. And that little D at the end is a big one because it determines your destiny. Are you going to be a humble person or a person who is humbled? If you're humble, God doesn't have to humble you. But if you're not humble, prepare yourself because one day you'll get knocked off that high horse. You will be humbled. And it's not pretty on the way down. You can ask Paul that. Acts chapter 9. It's not fun being humbled. It's shameful. It's painful. It's hurtful. And hopefully it will lead you to Christ. But it doesn't always. Because some people can't get past their own self-righteousness. Thus the unfair criticism against the Bible that it is sententious when it is not. But all of us can be sometimes. And this tells us why not to be. Next one. Almost done. Is the Bible foolish? Is the Bible just nonsense? Is it too old? Is it too out of date? Is it full of too many antiquated ideas? I mean, goodness, the Bible says that in the beginning God made the male and female. Talk about antiquated. And so you're going to hear that. Get ready for that, if not already. It's antiquated. It's out of date. It's nonsense. It's silly. It should be easily disregarded. And so, in fact, it is very casually disregarded nowadays. When I was a kid, this was militantly attacked. This was commonly fought against. Today, it is passive-aggressively disregarded. It's no big deal just to cast it aside. This is settled science. The Bible is stupid. It's a much harder battlefield today because the enemy isn't even shooting you anymore. They don't even care to. Try convincing a mind like that. It's much easier to convince the guy who is actively ready to attack you and fight over this that this is truth because it is truth. But if you don't even want to crack it open, if you just would rather brush it aside, it's very hard to convince someone to believe this thing. And so they look at it and they say it's foolishness, but it's not. It's just you can't get past the limits of your own understanding. The absolute peak limit of your understanding doesn't even come close to the mind that made this book. Listen to what something Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read the whole text and I'm going to get about halfway through it, and you're going to think, oh, I, I know this text. I've heard that text. And I'm going to get to the end of it, and you're going to think, oh, I know that text too. And maybe this is the first time you're going to realize it's the same context. Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He'll have mercy on him. And to our God, he'll abundantly pardon him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. Have you heard that before? My thoughts are not your thoughts, God says. My ways are not your ways. The way that I think about things, the way I go about accomplishing things, the way I stew over a plan and execute it, you can't even begin to fathom it. Okay, now keep going. For as the rain comes down and the snow from the heaven and doesn't go up for nothing, 
but instead waters the earth and brings it forth to bud, the flowers, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Stop, pause. This is God saying rain falls for a purpose. Snow falls for a purpose. It doesn't fall and then go back up for nothing. It falls so that it can provide nutrient to the ground to provide flowers, to blossom. The rain falls for a reason. So, verse 11, so shall my word that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God sends the rain not for nothing. God sent his word not for nothing. And I look at that word, and when my heart wants to hear that word, when my heart is soft and my mind is ready to be pricked and to, to turn to God, it will accomplish in me its intended function, which is to draw my mind closer to his mind. And without that desire, without that love for the word of God, without that love for the mouth of God, which produces that word, I will see this and I'll think it is nonsense, it is foolishness. But it is not. It's just that if I take God out of the equation and I say, I'm going to set out to write the book of all books. I'm going to set out to write the ultimate treatise on how to live in this world and get through it. I'm going to set out to write the ultimate guidebook for, for peace and contentment. The very best that all of humanity, for all of history, all put together could do doesn't come close to this book because my mind can't compare to his mind. Me, at my absolute peak best, is not as good as him when he just woke up in the morning, which he doesn't sleep. I can't begin to compare because my mind is not his mind, nor are my ways or my thoughts his thoughts and ways. And that incomparable, incomprehensible mind produced a word, and he produced it for a purpose. It's not foolishness. It's just I can't always grasp. It's certainly not without him in the equation, the meaning behind this word. And to summarize that, go to our reading that we had a minute ago. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, starting this time in verse 18 and reading a little bit more. 1 Corinthians 1.18, where Paul is defending the preaching of the gospel. He's defending his own livelihood and his, his mission in life is to preach. He defends it by saying, verse 18, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. The people who don't want to believe, the people who are going to be condemned. They don't have to be condemned, but they're going that way because they don't want to believe. They want to see it as foolishness, and so of course it's foolishness. It's a story where God died and then woke up. It sounds ridiculous. But to us which are saved, or the translation may be being saved, to those of us that are adding ourselves to the, or being added to the number of those who believe, when we hear that story, we see and we feel the power of God in that story. Keep reading. Verse 19. For it is written, I, God speaking, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And then he looks around and he says, Who's on my level? Where is the wise? I don't see any, I just see me, God says. Where is the scribe? Where is the one who could write something as good as what I've written? Nobody. Where is the disputer of this world? Who's the one that's going to stand on the debate stage and debate with me and try to change my mind? Uh-uh, no. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 21, then we're done. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. In other words, that's, that's Paul saying, God showed us his wisdom he revealed himself, made manifest. We're going to get that in the next, next point. He manifested his wisdom to us. And then we, 
in our sinful pride, we said, I'm going to understand that without God's help. I'm going to figure that out with my wisdom, and I'm never going to be able to do it. The world, by wisdom, can't know God. Thus, it pleased God by the so-called foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Of all ways to save people, it is through people being convinced by people of what truth is that God chose as the method. He could have beamed it into your brain. He could have written a letter in the sky. But the main way that God chose to get you to come to him is through me telling you that this says to go to him. He ple it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save people who want to obey the gospel. It's not foolish. It's just your mind can't comprehend it because you've taken God out of the equation. Put God back in, and this incomprehensible mind of his starts to be comprehensible. Comprehensible. Starts to make sense. Last point, then we're done. Is the Bible ill-intentioned? Now, the writer doesn't elaborate on what he means by that. I'd very much like to know what he read in this book that made him come away saying, boy, it sounds like the writer had bad motives. What did he read that made him say, it sounds like the person who wrote this thought the worst of his audience, wanted the worst for his audience. I don't know what he read, but I know what I've read when I read it. Look at Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11, and then we close. Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11, and listen to what Paul says. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, listen to that sententiousness, nope, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, unto principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Here is Paul saying, I want you to see, I want you to know, I want you to understand that which ought to be unknowable, unseeable, ununderstandable, because it comes from the mind of the infinite God. And the way that the infinite God explains himself is through the medium of his inspired word. And so Paul says, my job is to preach that inspired word to you, to make you see it, to make you know it, to take that which is hidden and reveal it, the manifold, the King James says, the full spectrum of like you see light and you break the light and you see the full spectrum of every color that's possible in that light. I'm going to show you the full rainbow of the wisdom of God, the full spectrum of God's wisdom to the intent that you may see it. He says in verse 11, the purpose behind it, the meaning behind it, the reason for it is so that you can see how much you are loved and how much God was willing to sacrifice to save you. That's not ill intention. That's the exact opposite. The intention behind the word of God is for you to know how loved you are. That's the proper motive behind the writing of this amazing book. Is the Bible repetitive? No, it's historical. And history repeats itself. Is the Bible uh, self-contradictory? No, it's situational. Each situation is independent and unique and yet it's all harmonious is the bible sententious no it is aspirational it's not saying you people are bad it's saying all of us need jesus now let's go get him because he's there he's not out of reach he's us he's there for us to receive and be saved by is the bible foolish no it is countercultural. it's not foolish you just don't agree is the bible ill-intentioned no it is invitational ill-intentioned would mean you're going to hell and i'm happy to hear it 
invitational is, if you don't get right with Jesus, you're going to hell. And what a tragedy that would be because you don't have to go to hell. You can be saved by the power, the mercy, and the love of God provided for you to read and to study and to know about in the B-I-B-L-E. So if you are here this morning, you're not a Christian, provided for you is all you need. There in your lap, bound in leather, is provided for you all you need to know what to do, to be saved, to be right, to stay right, to go home someday. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, but you've wandered off the path that the Bible laid out for you, all you have to do is crack that book open again and start studying and find someone who can help you if necessary. And if we need to help you, get back on the right path. Whatever you need, let it be known right now as we stand and sing.